0: Sip on the go with a Starbucks iced shaken espresso. Our signature roast, shaken with ice, then finished with a splash of milk. Customize it to match your style on the Starbucks app. Make today a good day.
1: Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 78 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with a big-name interview show every Monday, just like this one, and short four- or five-minute daily episodes released Tuesday through Sunday on a show that I call This Day Rocks. Thanks, as always, for hitting play. Now, if this is the first time you're listening to Vintage Rock Pod, please find Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app or player of choice and subscribe directly on there so you don't miss a single episode. As I said, one comes out every single day and you can only get all the episodes on the Vintage Rock Pod feed. So give it a like or subscribe separately on there too. I've had so many new listeners get on board lately. It's brilliant to hear from everyone, new and old. So thank you so much. Well, today's show features an interview with someone who plays an instrument that I've never featured before. Over the course of the last couple of years, I've had 17 Rock and Roll Hall of Famers on Vintage Rock Pod. Lead singers, solo acts, guitarists, bass players, drummers, keyboard players, even two people who have played the flute, Jethro Tull's Ian Anderson and Tice Van Leer from Focus, but never a saxophone player. Today's guest is John Helliwell from Supertramp. He joined the band in 1973, right before they made it big. The first album he played on is the now iconic Crime of the Century, and he's played and toured with the group ever since. His saxophone is a really embedded sound within the band. Now, Supertrump were massive in the 70s and 80s, 60 million records sold around the world. They had six top 20 hits in the US, two number one singles in Canada, and so many gold and platinum selling albums, including the iconic Breakfast in America. Listening to their back catalogue before interviewing John, it's incredible just how many of their songs are instantly recognisable. So it was great to be joined by John to get all his stories from his many years with the group. The classic lineup being him, Rick Davies, Roger Hodgson, Dougie Thompson, and Bob Siebenberg. I think that's how you say it before we hear my chat with him though a quick thank you to everyone for reaching out as always i love to hear from you whether it's on email or social media eric reed on youtube part of the growing subscriber list on the vintage rock pod channel on there it's small but growing just over 1400 subscribers now a recent video just crossed the fifty-five thousand views mark which is no mean feat as well so thank you very much also on youtube i post a fun poll every single day which is regularly getting two three hundred votes on there which is great to see as well if you have haven't yet, please do take a couple of minutes to find Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube and hit the subscribe button. You can then find the community tab where you have all the polls and you can click away to your heart's content. You also get to see the interviews, obviously, that I do with these classic rock stars and not just hear them as I bring them to you on the podcast. Also, a quick shout out to Mark Roberts, Dennis Stallard and Keith Ortson for their support too. But back to today's show then. John Helliwell's Supertramp. We talk all about his link up with Pink Floyd's David Gilmore, Joining Supertramp, the big albums, the singles, the hits, the success, uh, Roger leaving. Could there be a reunion? And his new album too. Plenty to get stuck into. So please enjoy my chat with John Helliwell. I'm delighted to be joined on Vintage Rock Pod by the wonderful John Helliwell. Or should I say John Halliwell? Welcome to the show, John. Thank you.
2: Uh, and it's Halliwell.
1: It Apple. is Halliwell. Yeah. No tell us the story. Yeah. Tell us the story why it could have been Halliwell or why it was Halliwell for, for a certain record. You've got it,
2: yeah, I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> they, spelled my name. I, they, they spelled my name wrong and didn't pay me. Oh, I'm, sh- I'm sure that um, some months before, uh, Dave Gilmore had played on our recording, Brother Way Bound, and I'm sure we paid him. <laughs> Maybe we didn't. <laughs> So I did that session, yes, and it was John Halliwell. And, uh, uh, yeah, it has been for many years, but it's it's been changed recently, apparently, ah, which is nice. Okay. Yeah, but I still haven't been paid.
1: <laughs> we'll have to get that sorted. How did all that come about then, the, the, the collaboration with, with uh, Dave on, on your record, uh, Supertramp's record, and then well, you? Well, that was good. Yeah, that, that,
2: uh, The Brother Way Bound, that was the first record that we made after Roger Hodgson, the, the co-writer, had left. And we were making, we were doing something serious. And we got we had this long track, Brother Way Bound, about communism and world order and events and everything. Uh, and then we had this space for a solo. And, and we sat we were sat around one night and somebody said, Yeah, guitar solo, we should we should get someone that sounds a bit like Dave Gilmore. <laughs> and and so I remember saying, why don't we get Dave Gilmore? He, he sounds the most like Dave Gilmore that I know. So yeah, we called and it, it was easy. He came over. We th- this was recorded in um, Los Angeles. He came over and set up and did a wonderful solo on on the, that track. By the way, he found was good. And then then just uh, three four months later, he, he called me and said, "Would you like to come down and have a blow on some some tracks that that we're doing?" And so I did. It was just one, an hour or so, one evening at a studio somewhere in the Valley in Los Angeles. Yeah, so it was quite easy, really. Now, on that album, on the uh, Momentary momentary Lapse of Reason, he he actually uses three different saxophonists on there. Okay. There's Tom Scott, Scott Page, and myself. Uh, He doesn't... He doesn't say who's who on on what track. So I, I, I sometimes listen to it and say, oh, that's me there. And that's me there. <laughs> anyway, I'm on there.
1: You're on a Pink Floyd record. That sounds good <laughs> enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned, obviously, you're saxophonist there. I mean, it's not an instrument that's... Uh... It's commonly used today. I mean, I've had millions of Rock and Roll Hall of Famers on here, singers, guitarists, bass players. I've even had uh, flautists on, Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull and Tyson oh. Van Leer from Focus, people like that. But you are my first saxophonist. So, uh-huh. so why do you think that the instrument isn't as as widely used today as, as it once was?
2: Yeah, I mean, coming up in the R&B stuff of the 50s and 60s, saxophones were used, like maybe with Bill Haley's Rock and Roll and all that, they were used there. And then. But then when, when rock music sort of, sort of went into flower power and then changed into progressive and everything, there weren't so many uh, wind players, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Very distinctive lack of trumpet and, and stuff, maybe a flute, and saxophone. So, yes, it was one of the advantages that we had when, when Supertramp uh, got together. They had a saxophone player before me, and then I joined in 73, Yep. And, and they must have liked that sort of sound that they had. And I also play clarinet, which, which is even more unusual yeah. in, in rock music. So it, it was a, a good string to our bow uh, when we got it. So it, it made us a little more unusual and, yeah. and different. So Absolutely. instead of just having a guitar solo, uh, which, which a lot of records were the main soloist is the guitar. Yeah. Uh, and but then we had the keyboards as well. And both the songwriters played keyboards, so there were solos there, uh, and then the saxophone and clarinet. So it added to our
1: strength. Absolutely. And some of the most iconic parts of Supertramp songs are your saxophone indeed. Well, but quickly, just before that, um, you played with uh, the Alan, Alan Baum set, didn't you? Um, yeah. Before Supertramp. And I just want to touch on quickly, um, Robert Palmer, he was briefly in the band, wasn't he? He was briefly within the group. I mean, yeah. what do you remember about Robert? Because obviously he went on to have an incredible career as well, didn't he?
2: Yeah, great. Great singer. Uh, and we used to live together. We, Alan okay. uh, is his mother... I used I used to uh, have a room in in her house in Slough. Of all rock and roll, (laughs) yeah, and then and then Robert joined me. uh, Another room became free in Mrs. Bowne's house, so both of us lived with Mrs. Bowe. It's quite funny, and um, this obviously, uh, yes, Slough. We used to go up to London quite a bit, and I remember one occasion where we got on the train from Slough to, to London and there was this girl sitting in there and Robert said oh yeah she's nice and and I, I said well go and talk to her and he was a bit reticent so I so, somehow I introduced them and she became his wife eventually wow <laughs> so, yeah that was nice uh, so yeah we used to live together great singer uh um lots of uh, and then he left and went with vinegar joe and and went on his own uh, and and uh, Strong personality and uh, did very well, except that he he fell victim to uh, you know an early death, yeah. which is not very nice. Yeah, due to uh, substances that we shouldn't use too often or at all.
1: <laughs> indeed, indeed. And um, so, for obviously from Alan Bound, uh, you you joined Supertramp. So tell us about how that came about. How did you manage to join the group?
2: Well, that was interesting. Uh, let's see. Yes, I, I, first of all, I was a computer programmer and I joined a few groups in Birmingham. Okay. And, then, uh, and then that kind of one group fell apart. And it was it, I put an advert in the Melody Maker to join up with the Alan Brown. And we lasted for quite a few years. And then at one point in the very early 70s, uh, all the rest of us, except for Alan, tried to leave Alan and form <laughs> our own group, which we called Wizard which was not Roy Wood's wizard. wizard, it was a different wizard. But we we didn't do very well with that because we did one gig at, uh, in London some some night, and we were doing pretty good. And at the end of the gig, somebody the manager came around and took all our equipment and our van and everything. And so we, we had nothing to play on or do, and it just kind of fell apart. Um, so I, I started to get other jobs, and, and I... I was working for a time in a a sort of strip club in in the West End. And then I got involved with uh, visiting American soul singers like Arthur Connolly and uh, Jimmy Ruffin and Johnny Johnson uh, and played with them for a while. Then I got a gig with a a guy in Germany playing American air basses. That was nice. He was a bit like uh, Ray Charles sounding with an, an organ. That was quite a nice gig. But I was getting a bit homesick by then. And so this was in spring, early summer of 1973. And I called home one time. That was a difficult process in those days. You had to go yeah. down to the post office and book a time and go to a, a, a booth in the, on the wall, on the road, whatever. It was really hard. But my wife said, oh, Dougie Thompson's just, just called up and, and said, would you like to go down for a blow with, with Supertramp? No, uh, when I was with the Alan Bowne and other people I was playing with, I'd seen Supertramp once or twice and enjoyed the music very much. And then Doody Thompson had been in the Alan Bowne group uh, towards the end. And then he joined Supertramp from an audition and he'd been playing with them for a couple of years. So he said, would you like to come down for a blow to my wife? And she told me, and I said, well, yeah, I'm just, I'm a bit homesick now. I'm coming home anyway next week. So I, I came back and it was July 73 and I went down for a blow with, with them. They were rehearsing in, in a railway arch somewhere and uh, just stayed. That was it.
1: <laughs> the rest, as they say, is history. I mean, wow. at that point they'd released a couple of albums, but they didn't really have that breakthrough. So almost this, this album that you joined them for, was that almost a make, and, uh, make or break sort of situation?
2: Yeah, it was. It was. They they said at the time we think we've we, they got Bob on drums and and then myself, <coughs> so Bob and Doogie and myself and Rick and Roger, uh, we thought we had a good combination. It sounded great playing together. So we went we went to the record company and said, um, how about doing another album? And they and they sort of said, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll do one more. And so we, we thought to ourselves, we've got to really go all out with this and make it really good. So it was kind of a serious project. Uh, and uh, the, a guy from the record company joined us as a manager. That was Dave Margerison. And so he was looking after us. Yep. And he got us all together in a farmhouse in the country, as you did back in the, <laughs> in the 70s. And we rehearsed a lot. And then we got a really good producer, Ken Scott. And we thought we had a good, a really good album. And we, we did our best and made it. And it was kind of hi fi, good sound, really great tune. So that was crime of the century. Yep. So, uh, and then we, we sort of went out with that and presented that to the public. And we were, we also had the advantage of being quite good live, you know, so yes. people came to the co- concerts and really enjoyed enjoy the music. So it kind of took off from there. We started to we started doing a tour in 1974, I think, for touring "Crime of the Century," and it just kind of built up through the '70s.
1: And "Crime of the Century" is one of those albums that everybody knows. You say the name, and instantly recognizable with with Supertramp and things like that. I mean, in terms of yeah. a make or break record, it certainly made the band, didn't it? And and put you on yeah. the path to success.
2: It did, and it was a serious project. And I think one good one good thing about it is is that there's a certain enigmaticness about, about the tunes. For example, crime of the century, yeah. and it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. It's nothing specific. You know, it's not, I missed the eight ten train and my girl's gone sort of thing. Because <laughs> that's, that's, only, that's only about one thing, isn't it? Whereas, whereas they managed to make the, the lyrics, which I'm not great at lyrics, but they managed to make things quite enigmatic, so you can put your own meaning to a lot of them.
1: Yeah, the Tunes. And so, you mentioned uh, that about playing live and things. I mean, obviously th- th- at the time you on stage, you weren't <laughs> playing the saxophone the whole time. So you're, you're doing various different things, as you said, uh, the clarinet, you were on keyboards at times, different, various different yeah. things on the stage. I mean, how did you feel um, doing that at the time?
2: Oh, well, it was essential really, because we'd made a, a at least 24 track multi-track album, Yeah, maybe more tracks than that. And then it's all reduced to two, you know, for the stereo. But then you've got to kind of rethink the tunes when you go out and try and do them live. And there was, back then, for a few years, there was just the five people trying to make all the sounds. So a lot of keyboards. And then there's the the two songwriters either playing guitar, Roger played guitar and keyboards, or Rick plays keyboards and sang. So there's all the other things to kind of fill in And and then the saxophone lines. and So I ended up being not exactly a jack of all trades, but having to play keyboards, string parts, and all that business. So it was quite interesting how we we had to do it. uh, Like I'd have a note going and and I'd be picking up my clarinet, (laughs) and and then Roger would take over and keep his finger on that note and play more, you know. It it was quite uh, interesting how we managed to do it. But we made quite a good job of it, really of producing that uh, complicated music
1: just with five people. Absolutely. And just skipping on a little bit, obviously that broke through in America as well. It cut through there. And and talking of America, you guys actually moved over there, didn't you, to, to try and really break it through?
2: Yes. Um, we, we thought it was about 1975 or so. We, we toured sort of as much as we could at the time in this country and then a, a, a bit in Europe. Yeah. So we thought... Well, we should really try and crack the United States, North America would be really good. Uh, and it was really interesting because the record company was based there in Los Angeles, A M Records. Uh, and so we got some, we got really good help from them on our first tour of North America. Uh, you end up sort of going to a real something like like this. You go to a radio station and and say. And the, the, the DJ says he's talking to you and says, well, the first two to call up will get tickets for tonight's <laughs> concert, Milwaukee, or whatever it was. And in reality, we've got about 50 or 100 <laughs> tickets to give away to people. You know, they're all the first two yeah. that called in. So it's, we used to call it Paper in the House, I think. it's an, And so the promotion for this tour was, was really good. And it's also in uh, Canada. And um, the U.S. Uh, and so it was a good start because um, everybody. It seemed like everybody who came to the papered concerts really enjoyed it, and they came back the next time. So we toured again in a year or two or whatever. So it built. It
1: built up quite quite nicely from that. And how do you think um, living in America kind of affected the music that you were producing, that sort of thing?
2: Well, there was a, there was. The the songwriters were influenced, of course, yeah, which eventually came out with Breakfast in America, which was a kind of reaction to living there for three or four years. Um, It was an interesting time. Uh, They're all still over there. I mean, I came back to this country at a later date, uh, but they're all still over there, really. Um, But it was an enjoyable time, really, Uh, good times. We were in California, which is kind of different from all the rest of the states Mm. anyway, and then Los Angeles, la, la, land. (laughs) But the good thing about it was the record company was there, and they had a big uh, lot with recording studios and stuff in which we started to use. Uh, So it was was quite nice times, really. I I stayed there for 17 years. Wow.
1: Wow incredible stuff and now you're back in blighty and we touched on breakfast in america there i mean grammy award nominations um there was number ones all over the world platinum discs i think it's still one of the biggest selling records in in french history i mean what do you remember take take us back to the recording the the writing the the whole kind of build up to this this record what do you remember about the studio and and rick and roger bringing the songs in what do you remember about this this period
2: yeah well it was it was by then it was the i think the fourth album that we'd Mm-hmm. Recorded together, um, and then the, the main thing about this studio situation was the village recorders in West LA uh, was the inordinate length of time that it took us to do. Okay. We 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 had it, it's a it's a good and bad really to have the freedom to take as long as you want, yeah, because uh, you end up at times losing it and then having to bring it back. I mean, obviously, the very best way to record is just to go in a studio or whatever, play it, do it, go. That's it. But we were in there for about six months, you know, (laughs) building everything up in pieces, knocking them down again and then building them up. It took nearly a week to get the drum sound. Wow. And so all all we heard for like a week of going, (laughs) and we had a very pernickety sound. Man, mem- sixth member of the group Russell Pope, so it took us ages to get all the sounds right. And uh, anyway, we eventually pulled it pulled it together. But it's it, like pulling teeth. In the end, it just took so long, but <laughs> but it worked in the end. We we managed to to make it sound good. And it was different from uh, yeah. say uh, a crow in the century. It was different. It was more just like a collection of songs. And they sounded, somehow they sounded better on the radio. It, it, the mix worked in a sort of hi-fi way, but it also worked on singles. Yes. And people listening on little speakers. Somehow that was the, that was the engineer, Pete Henson,
1: that, uh, that, was very instrumental in getting, us that type of sound. Um, and you're talking about getting the type of sound. I mean, there was one story of you recording the saxophone in the toilet. Is that, is that correct?
2: Yeah and that came about because we needed the we needed the main studio I think it was for the drums to get a particular <laughs> sound. and then Roger was was in I think he was in the drum booth playing uh playing the electric uh, the, the Wurlitzer electric piano I think it was on that yeah and um the logical song and then the bass was somewhere else so there wasn't a room left for me and the reason to keep the you don't want to play in the room with the drums because you're going to, the drums are spoiling the sound for the sax and, and vice versa. So they they said, why don't you just pop into the, the toilet down the corridor, so down the corridor. So that was it. <laughs> um, and interestingly enough, um, a, a lot of recording is is overdubbing where something's already been played and then you go in and then you play on top. That's what I do quite a lot of nowadays. In fact, you know, more that's more an at home thing. Uh, but what we used to do, we, we used to lay down what we would call a basic track, which would be the main concentration is the drums, bass, and the keyboard, say, or guitar. And you, you just got to make sure that that's all right. Because once, if that's okay, then everything else can be, be added. Uh, so, but that day when or days when we were recording, we, we ended up recording about four or five different versions of the logical song, and I played saxophone on every one, and it, every solo was kind of different, you know. And so but we went home that night, and we took with us the the basic track, not listening to the saxophone or whatever else was on there, and we just listened to the basic tracks, and we all chose eventually the one that sounded the best so then then we listened to it and turned the saxophone on that was on that track anyway and that's the one that that that's the, the one that is you use, is used you know so it, there must have been some kind of good sort of working
1: together thing <laughs> with it so that's have it, you actually. ever tried that again playing the the saxophone in the toilet for a record
2: well uh No, I haven't actually. But I've been in a separate room and once you're in a separate room and I normally close my eyes, so I couldn't be anywhere really.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Obviously, we're talking about the Logical song. That was an absolutely huge hit as well. It was was, uh, a definite standout. I read somewhere Paul McCartney said it was his favourite song of the year that time and and Rolling Stone remarked that uh, the hot sax on it was phenomenal as well. I mean, that song just seemed to grab the public attention, didn't it?
2: Yeah, Yeah, and it's interesting sometimes when people come up to me, saxophonists, and and they say, uh, hey, it's because of you that I started to play the saxophone. That's a nice thing, really, to to be responsible uh, for that, Uh, people taking up that dreadful instrument.
1: (laughs) 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 And what do you make of, um, I think it was a few years ago, wasn't it, there was a dance remix that did really well in the charts. What do you make of of songs and, and covers and samples and things like that?
2: Don't normally like them, to be honest. And I just I just heard one the other day, which I didn't mean, even know existed. Thing you find things on YouTube, you yeah. know, whatever. And it was it was uh, Dreamer, I think, and that was a dance mix of Dreamer, and it was horrific. <laughs> I mean, I know it's a pounding incessant rhythm anyway, but then to put another one on, and it's normally like, <laughs> you know, it's normally there is normally a doom in there. Uh, so not generally too uh, uh, enamoured of them. There was a mix, there was a, a dance mix done of Cannonball from a later album, mm-hmm. uh, which was, that was quite interesting because the track itself was a bit a bit like that to start with. You know, it was an incessant yeah. thing. Yeah, so I generally don't like them. My whole thing with music is, is most of the music that I like is played by real musicians interacting with each other at the time, you know, which is half true with most of the Supertramp recordings. We were reacting with each other for what we call basic tracks. So that feeling Mm -hmm. is there, and then other things can be added. But when you start off with uh, a machine playing Mm -hmm. drums or something, it's got to be
1: really good
2: to... It's got to be really done well to, to be effective
1: for me. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Uh, now, in terms of the record itself, Breakfast in America, I mean, you, you guys were successful, obviously, before that, but Breakfast in America kind of elevated you to, to even higher status, didn't it? I think it was four times platinum or something, That the sales in America alone. I mean, it, what was that like at that time to, to suddenly go from being here to being, whoa, up here somewhere?
2: Well, at the beginning, the first six months or so, we were touring, uh, or, or maybe longer. Uh, it didn't affect us too, too much because we were out on tour. And yeah. The if, one effect of it was to get really good audiences full, you know, full all the time. That was good. And then we would go back home and have a rest after that. It kind of knocked us out because we'd made the album and it took months and months. And yeah. then we did about eight months of touring uh, and we were all knackered at the end of it. And so we had some time off. So that was the time when we were living in, California, Malibu, Anger, uh, and sort of getting our home, homes together and, and everything. So we've never been affected adversely, I don't think, by fame as such. We've, we've always had our feet on the ground. Uh, one reason is that we didn't get famous when we were teenagers. Yeah. So that didn't go to our heads so much. So we were able to, to be relatively normal off off stage and out of it so which is good you don't get all the bother of it. <laughs> but, but we considered ourselves musicians rather than pop stars yes you know? yeah so that, that, that's about it
1: really <laughs> um, and then moving on again a few years um, when Roger decided to to call it quits and leave the band I mean given the success that you'd had up to that point I mean how did that feel when when that came around
2: um it seemed inevitable knowing him, because uh, we'd had to um, almost tie him up and keep him, keep him there when we were recording Crime um, of the Century. He wanted to go to India <laughs> when we were rehearsing for Crime of the Century, so we persuaded him to stay. So we kept persuading him to stay through the seventies, <laughs> uh, and that. But eventually, he he wanted to uh, be able to. Get more music out and do his own thing or whatever. So he did in eighty three. So the thing was there was the there was the big Breakfast in America explosion, and then there was a massive tour seventy nine, and then there was there was only one more studio album, and then Roger left, and and we decided that we would do a, a tour, and it was quite a big tour, uh, open air gigs in Europe, yeah. especially, and. Uh, that was kind of Roger's farewell, 1983. Uh, and so the feeling was, well, he's got to do it. What shall we do, the other guys in the band? And we all said, well, we'd we'd love to be able to just stay on with Rick and, and carry on with, with Supertramp. So it was just a, a decision like that. But then the music that we made, we decided, all of us really, that we should do something perhaps a little more serious just to,
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Mark the direction in which Supertramp may may be going in the future. So that was that was Brother Wayne Yeah. So that set us on on a new a new direction, not quite as poppy, yes, but with some good songs. And so it carried on in in that direction, and we were quite happy to to stay with
1: Rick. Absolutely. And in terms of uh, Supertramp itself, I mean. You guys kind of you called it quits in the '90s, I think it was, and then you came back again. In the 2000 was it 2012? The last time you guys were together. Is there any any thoughts of of trying to bring it back again?
2: It would be good. It, it would be great. What would be good would be to have the original five. Yes. Because Dougie kind of left at some stage when we were working with Rick, uh, and to get Roger back, and we could probably do really well and make and do good tours or a tour or whatever but it's probably going to be too much for the health mm-hmm. uh, especially rick because in um we were due to do another tour in 2015 Europe was booked tickets were being sold and rick uh, got multiple myeloma uh, and had to fight that and so everything was canceled and there's been nothing since so what happened in the um the 80s we carried on with rick in the 80s and made a few albums and then there was a time when he he wanted some time off and maybe to write or and there was a there was a chance of him doing a solo album which never materialized and it was during that time that i decided that i decided that i would study music yeah. for a change and so in 92 i I came back from California to, to this country to study in Manchester at all places, <laughs> which is quite near to my hometown anyway. Uh, so yeah, so the things kind of changed then. And then later in the '90s, Rick thought, well, well let's make another Supertramp album, which he, which he did. I went, and just before that, in '96, I'd gone to work with Roger again. Roger had a project that that uh, that involved his son on drums and and uh, several other people, and I played I played with him on that project. And then I went to Los Angeles and rehearsed and then recorded with uh, with Rick to do another Supertramp album. And then we we toured that the, the next year, ninety seven, toured that. So we we sporadically played after that. And uh, there was another album in two thousand and two. Which was just after the nine eleven incident, so that I was kind of marred by that uh, physically trying to get to the states and record and everything. And I can't remember all the tours, but two thousand and ten was quite big. Yes, yeah, that was good. Europe, Canada, U.S. That, that was good. But it, the, the we were all looking forward to the two thousand and fifteen, but it, it seems that the the uh, uh, touring is quite hard physically, you've got to look after yourself. But it, it, yep. You've got to be quite strong to do it. So I don't think we will. It's, then maybe there's a slight possibility that we might do one-off or something. Yeah. I don't know. But it's as never as been easy to, to, uh, for now for Roger and Rick to get together to actually, well, make music or perform together. Yeah. This is so different, personalities. Yeah, Roger's the seeker, Rick's got his feet on the ground anyway. I think he's already sneaked and <laughs> 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 found it. I don't know. He's already city. sought, indeed. The <laughs> country versus the city.
1: The now, uh, you're with me today, obviously, because you've got a new record. I think it's just come out now. Um, don't Ever Leave Me. It's, a, it's a, a new record that you've put out there. So tell us about the roots of this one, because this one goes back pre-pandemic, doesn't it?
2: Yes, but the the thing is, my main influences, as with many saxophonists, are jazz saxophonists. Yes. You know, there's some good rock sax saxophone players, but uh, Cannonball Adderley and Sonny Rollins and people like John Coltrane, people like that, have been my influences. Then I brought this jazz thing to to the rock, the rock. Whereas with with Supertramp. There were different influences. There was mm-hmm. beach boys. There was yeah. surf music. There was the Beatles. And Rick's a kind of jazz guy as well. So there was all these things milling around. But when I came back to this country, just to study at the Royal Northern College of Music, I met quite a few good players and began to work with them. And so, in the 2003 or four, I made an album. And I call the group Creme Anglaise, and that's a kind of jazzy, funky.
0: Yeah.
2: And so I, I con- I've continued playing with other people, uh, people in Europe that, that take a that kind of jazzy or Celtic or all sorts of things. But I've always had this love of jazz, and it's, my recordings have become more jazzy mm-hmm. recently. And um, I worked with the drummer who used to play with Pat Metheny. And I made, I made an album, I toured in Italy a couple of times with, with this guy, Paul Vertico, and we, made an, we did a tour in 2009 Very good. and made an album with the Italians. And then I had this project which I worked with a, a friend of mine, Andy Scott, saxophone player and uh, arranger, uh, and he arranged a string quartet for me. And so I thought, I'll do an album with a string quartet that's kind of a nice a nice thing to do, you know. And during the process of, of thinking about how to do it, I thought, I wonder if we could add something else to this. And I thought of a Hammond organ. So this the album, which I'm going to show you, Ever Open Door, mm-hmm. I, I made it about three years ago yeah. uh, with, with a string quartet and a Hammond organ, and it's mostly kind of ballads. It seems to be the way I'm, I'm going in that direction. Uh, we, we did a couple of champ tunes on that, that's Ever Open Door is one of Rick's. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I worked with a Dutch record company called Challenge Records for this one, okay. and I'm, through that association I met a bass player called J- Jasper Somsen, uh, and for the last two or three years we have been wanting to make an album together and so we, we finally, after many cancellations because of COVID, we, <laughs> we recorded in Belgium earlier this year in March. And we've got this one, Don't Ever Leave Me. And so that's with the bass player, Jasper, piano and drums. It's like a normal quartet, jazz quartet. And I play clarinet and saxophone. And it's just a collection of uh, ballads and tunes that I really, really love the tunes, including... The two of us or two of us by Roger Hodgson is on there yeah. and um this uh, just, uh you started laughing is on there too that's another another super jump one so I like to take those and then do a version with the, yeah with and so it's just I, I love I love good tunes so I like playing good tunes so that's what these this latest project is about
1: good stuff indeed now in terms of this new record then i mean where can we get hold of it where's the best way to get our hands on this
2: it's it's out on the it's it's on itunes and spotify and everything this this don't ever leave me and uh it's if you go on to the um challenge records website there's a way of buying it there yeah. it's nice to have the physical product it I'm is still a yes. physical product guy yes especially with
1: uh, lps
2: there's a, there's an LP of this, the Barrier Session.
1: That's good. Brilliant stuff. Well, I urge everyone to get out there and listen and buy and, and maybe look out for the big LP version of the I Don't know, you Ever Leave Me as Well, because that sounds like it's going to be fantastic. Well, John, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with yeah. you today. I wish you best to look for that and uh, hopefully you see you out on the road at some point.
2: Okay. Lovely. Well, thank you. It's been nice talking to you.
1: A huge thanks to John Helliwell for joining me. Please support John, give his recent records a stream, a listen, or better still grab a copy. It makes a huge difference to musicians these days, it really does. Right, it's the time of the show for the top fives, and of course I'm going to run you through my favourite five songs from Supertramp. But as always, first a few mentions from the last time out when I interviewed Canned Heat's Fito Della Para. You reached out with your own favourites from the Woodstock veterans, Scott Fleming opting for Rolling and Tumbling, Werner Grote for Amphetamine Annie, and Dennis Stallard picking his five, which were Going Up the Country, Rolling and a Tumbling, Dust My Broom, On the Road Again, and Let's Work Together. Petra Alice said Going Up the Country is one of her favourite songs ever. And Bruce Taylor said his favourite not song, which isn't one of the bigger ones, is Whiskey and Women. Huge thanks to everyone that got in touch with their choices from episode 77. But back to Supertramp then. Remember, this is my personal choice, my favourite songs. These lists are obviously highly subjective, of course. So here you go. My favourite five songs from Supertramp. At five is the title song from their breakthrough album, the last track on the record. For me, the second half of this song, the feel of it, the groove is brilliant, and that's why it sneaks into my top five. At number five is Crime of the Century. number four is another song from crime of the century it's uh, over seven minutes long it's an epic one it's a deep song with some great musical breaks in it number four is rudy Number three is the opening track on 1977's Even In The Quietest Moments album. It's a brilliantly catchy melody, nice and simple sing-along that sticks in your head all day. And number three is Give A Little Bit.
0: Give a little bit
1: At two is a third track from Crime of the Century. This is the track that first broke through in America, landing at 35 on the Billboard chart. It's a lot heavier and rockier than some of their other numbers, which is probably why it features so highly in my list. At number two is Bloody Well Right. And at number one for me is the lead single from their iconic Breakfast in America record. Going to number one in Canada, top 10 in the UK, Ireland, and US, it remains their biggest hit. Such a catchy song, brilliant phrasing, brilliant hot sax from John on this as well. It's an instantly recognizable tune and deserves the spot at number one on my list. So, the number one song by Supertramp, according to Vintage Rockpot, is, of course, the logical song. What So there you go, my top five songs from Supertramp. So many other big songs missing out. Dreamer, School, Take the Long Way Home, Breakfast in America, It's Raining Again, Goodbye Stranger, Hide in My Shell. Loads of great songs from this band. As always, though, I love to hear what you think. What do you think I got right? What do you think I got wrong? Message me on the social media platforms. You can find a post that I put up later in the week. Or email me, vintagerockpod at gmail.com, and I'll give you a readout on next week's show. But that's it for me then, and this week's big interview show, thanks again for listening, make sure you subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app and on YouTube, and I'll be back tomorrow with another This Day Rocks. And remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care.